Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, thanks for the introduction there, Jim Nance. Always appreciate it. And we obviously we got NBC back at it for BMW Championship for this week. And what a cool thing. A good, great to hear Dan Hicks's voice, Paul Azinger, everybody back in, in the saddle. First time since the Players' Championship, I want to say. It's been a good five months. But what did you guys think of the BMW Championship? Of course, Dustin and John Rahm. I tweeted out as it happened. I thought, when was the last time we had a world number one and world number two show so much emphatic emotion towards the end of a tournament on the final two holes? Really, it was the last hole back-to-back, really, because Dustin had to force the playoff, and he did somehow willed it in. Have you ever seen that much emotion from DJ? And then, of course, John Rahm comes back, and makes a longer putt uh, to one-up DJ. Look at it, Rom. What a what a player. Talk about the upside. What kind of ceiling does he have? I actually will get into that with my next guest, Tim Mickelson. Of course, he's currently caddy for his brother, Phil Mickelson, on the PGA Tour. But as you know, five seasons for Arizona State University, he was a mentor and he was the college coach of John Rom. So some very unique thoughts on who John Rahm is as a competitor, as a person, kind of those formative years, 18, 19, 20. He's seen John go through a lot, and he has a lot to share with us on just what Rahm brings to the table and what kind of player he is, what kind of competitor. We're seeing so much, obviously, right now with what Rahm is doing. But yeah, very exciting stuff. I mean, we will get to Tim in just a minute. And of course, let's look at the final 30. You look at that scoreboard as we get into the Tour Championship. It's going to be strokes, right? DJ's going to start at 10 under. They started this last year with uh, Justin Thomas having the lead. But let's look at our players. Who did you have going into the playoffs? I had Daniel Berger. As my number one, and Bryson DeChambeau is my number two. So when you look down the line, DJ, 10 under. John Rahm, 8 under. Justin Thomas, 7. Webb Simpson, 6. Morikawa's at 5 under. Only 5 back. I should say only. It's <laughs> a waste to go here. Daniel Berger is at 4 with Harris English. DeChambeau, my number two. Sungjae Im, Hideki Matsuyama. On down the line, a bunch of other players for the, filling out the rest of the field all the way down to even par with the likes of Victor Hovland, Cameron Smith, Mackenzie Hughes, Cameron Champ, and Billy Horschel. Of course, he won this event, beat Roy McIlroy, and what I think is one of the really impressive finishes by any player in a FedEx Cup. I mean, just going toe-to-toe with McIlroy in 2014. Remember, Rory was coming off major championship at the PGA, and Billy dug deep and found an extra gear. He wasn't enough to get him into the Ryder Cup that year. Remember, Tom Watson texted him and said, oh, you're a... You're a day late, but you're not a buck short after he beat Rory at the Tour Championship. So it's cool to see Billy back in the field at the Tour Championship, and he's going to be in all the majors. That's the big plus, of course. All these guys are in all the majors for next year. But what do you guys think? Huge, huge finish for the BMW. we got a big week here at Tour Championship. But we get to my next guest, Tim Mickelson, who has so much insight on the players who have just won on the big tours. We're talking about the debut of his brother, Phil 
on the Champions Tour, of course. They were at Ozarks National there in Missouri. Awesome, awesome display of golf from Phil. And we got some very good insight and perspective from what it was like being inside the ropes from Tim's perspective as the caddy. He kind of gives us a glimpse of what Phil was thinking and you know, I, I just thought it was entertaining, right? It was fun to see that and fun to see the reaction of other players. We get we get into that with Tim as well. What was it like hearing from the other players uh, as they were out there playing with Phil and trying to manage this young pup, the 50-year-old, joining the ranks? So we'll get to Tim Mickelson here on Beyond the Clubhouse. This was a really fun one. I'd like to thank my next guest, Tim Mickelson, joining me on Beyond the Clubhouse. And Tim, of course, you've taught for five seasons at Arizona State. Of course, that's where your brother, Phil Mickelson, went to school. So much memories there. Of course, John Rahm, who's been such a big player in the news recently. He was, of course, uh, a winner there and, and a decorated career. You mentored him. What's going on with you today? Here we got a couple big tournaments coming up. But how are things going for you, Tim? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on. Everything's going great. Um, right now I'm just chilling, hanging out the house. I got one week off and then we'll be heading up to Napa for the Safeway Open. Uh, from Safeway, we'll head straight to the U.S. Open, hopefully have a great performance there. Would love to see Phil get his uh, victory at the U.S. Open, complete the Grand Slam. And then after that, I think it's still very, very much up in the air as to what we're going to play the rest of the fall with obviously uh, CJ Cup moving to Las Vegas, uh, Zozo, that's up in the air. I don't even know what's going on with HSBC. So after the U.S. Open, I don't know what the schedule is, but wherever Big Boss Man tells me to go, I'll go. Let's talk about your golf game for a minute, though, Tim. Like, obviously, you've played so well. I had seen that you are a two. Last I read, like, where are you off at the, at the moment right now? Uh, honestly, I haven't post. I haven't played enough rounds of golf to keep an active handicap. I would say I'm comfortable playing as a scratch although my handicap probably says I'm a plus two to plus three still. Man. Of course, you played at Torrey Pines. How many times did you play there in that uh, – was the Buick at the time? So I played – I played – my only PGA Tour event was basically back when it was called the Buick Invitational. And uh, the year I had to sit out at Oregon State, I ended up qualifying. They used to have an amateur qualifier. It was the best thing in the world for $100 – uh, basically sort of like the top 100 amateurs in Southern California. You signed up. You got to play one round at Torrey Pines on a Saturday morning with the round three pins from the year before. Uh, and they took the low amateur. Actually, back then it was actually two amateurs. And then recently it was one. But uh, to get into the field. And I remember shooting, I think it was 60. God, back then it was like 67 or 68. I remember beating Joel Kreibel, who was the number one ranked amateur in the world at the time. Uh, he was playing with me. I beat him on the last hole to beat him by one to get into that. But a crazy story similar to that is uh, about eight years after, I was, I was the head coach at University of San Diego, and I had Mark Wiebe's son, Gunner, on my team. Mark Wiebe obviously played the tour. He won the Senior British Open a few years ago. And we both played in this amateur qualifier and I go out and I shoot 69 and with about three groups left, I'm the only round under par and Gunnar wow. Weeby shoots 69 and we have to go into a playoff. So now here I am, his golf coach playing against one of my players for a spot in a PGA tour event. And, and we play five holes of sudden death and we run out of daylight. 
And the next morning I had to go recruit. And so the guy who run, ran the Century Club at the time just said, look, you figure out how you want to settle this. If you want it to be a three-hole playoff, a six-hole playoff, nine-hole playoff, 18, whatever you want, it's up to you guys. We're happy to do. So ultimately we came back a month later and we had an 18-hole playoff. Uh, just Gunner and I. And, and I remember in that month, I'm trying to decide what's the right thing to do. As a coach, do I just say, you know what, I'm going to forfeit my spot and Gunner, you go play a PGA Tour event. It's, you know, it's your time to shine. And then the competitiveness shows up and says, well, no, I, I want that spot or at least make him earn it. And so ultimately that's what we do. And I remember I had one of my best ball striking rounds probably in the last 10 years. And I had one of the worst putting rounds I've had in the last 10 years. And I think Gunner's game was the exact opposite. And Gunner, ultimately, we were both one over for that round going into 18. And Gunner made basically the exact same putt Tiger made in the U.S. Open on 18 to that front right pin uh, to beat me by one and get a spot in the in the tournament. Gosh, what a story, man. Like you said, there's two different sides of you. What do you go with in that moment? Because exactly. you, love, you love your yeah. player. Um, we'll briefly get into Rom in that regard, and we can finish up with Rom a little bit later in this interview. Yeah. But what was – I know you weren't fighting with him for a PGA Tour spot at any point in the five years seasons you coached with, uh, you yeah. know, there, and, and you were coaching John for some of those seasons. But yeah. what was the most competitive round you ever had against John Rom? <laughs> well, John beat me plenty of times, but the story I'm going to say actually makes me look good. So I'll say that one, which was, I believe it was John's, it was either his freshman or sophomore year. And we took a team retreat to Flagstaff, Arizona, and we split the team into two, you know, sort of like a Ryder Cup style. And John Rom was supposed to play against Max Rotliff, who was also a first team All-American one year for me at ASU. He's, he's on the Corn Ferry Tour. Uh, we also went to this place called Slide Rock in Flagstaff and Max fell and broke his wrist. Nobody else uh, was available to play against John because the teams were even and I was the captain of Max's team. So I said, you know what? I'll play against John. I'll use Max's clubs and just see what happens. And I go on to beat John five and four. And John still remembers that story because he jokes about it too. But John's probably 90 and one against me. But I'd like to remember that one time because that's also a time that he remembers. But, you know, John is such a competitor, obviously. I mean, it, it goes without saying. Everybody knows how competitive he is. And he was not just a great player at ASU, but he was a phenomenal teammate, too. He was willing to take out, take his time to help other people with, with teaching them whatever, whether it was full swing, which was very minimal. But he helped a lot of guys when it came to putting and chipping and technique and things like that as well as he was the example, you know, he set the example as to how much time to practice. And, you know, hey, if John, the number one amateur in the world, is out practicing, why are we not? Why are we at the pool? If we want to be better, why aren't we trying to strive to be like him? And so he was a, a great example of leadership uh, while at Arizona State. It's interesting that you say that his work ethic and striving to, to kind of set the set the pace. Is there a particular event that you can think of when he was out there kind of setting the pace, I should say, kind of on the off time instead of being at the pool? Is there kind of a particular moment that really stands out now? Here we are a few years later. Yeah, there really isn't a particular moment because when you set the example day in, day out, there's, there's no one moment that's going to, to 
stand out. And that's what he did. I mean, every day John would be there and, and John was smart. He wouldn't just be there for 10 hours and get two hours of work done. He might be there for four hours, but he got four hours of work done. You know, it wasn't like he was just wasting time. And I think that's one of the great things about John is, and he's, he's transitioned this into his pro careers. His practice is all about quality, not quantity. It doesn't matter how many hours you're there if you're wasting your time when you're there. And, and John's great about that. You know, there's plenty of days that John gets done playing and just leaves the course, you know, whether he plays good or bad. It's like, I'll worry about it tomorrow morning before the round instead of, and there's, this obviously works for a lot of guys, but after the round, they go straight to the range and work on things. You know, everybody has to find that balance. And I think John, John found his balance very quickly as a pro. I think it only took him maybe a year to two years to really know how he needs to practice and prepare to play his best. When I think a lot of tour players, you know, it takes them a lot longer to figure that, that process out. And figuring out prioritizing when he's going to figure out how to play his best in seeing this develop with your young star there, John Rom. when did you realize this guy is really special? Like, wow. So there was a moment his freshman year that I knew he was very good. Uh, there were actually two moments his freshman year. One, we had a tournament at pumpkin, pumpkin Ridge and after, you know, John came up to me and, and, before the tournament said, you know, I think this course is pretty easy. I think I can play well. And I'm like, John, they've had U.S. amateurs here. They've had, I think, a, you know, a senior uh, U.S. Open. They've had, you know, you know, Corn Ferry tour events. I'm like, this isn't an easy course. He goes, I, I think I can play pretty well. And he goes on to shoot 77 the first round. And so I remember looking at a scorecard and I said, well, 77, that it's a pretty easy course, huh? And he just gave me this look and he said, don't worry, I got this. And he goes out and shoots 65, 66, the last two rounds, and finishes second in the tournament. So that was one moment. And then the second moment was when he went out and shot, oh, gosh, I'm going to butcher this. I think it was a 61, 61 in the national championship in the first round as a freshman. Awesome. So those two moments as a freshman. But certainly when John finished fifth in the Waste Management Open as a junior in college, that was the defining moment to me that a, this kid is going to be very special at the next level, not just the level he's at, but number two, he's ready for that next level. And thankfully for me, uh, you know, after that tournament, John got on a plane and flew straight to Hawaii to meet us because we had a tournament in Hawaii. And basically the first thing he said when he landed, I, you know, I congratulated him on a great, great week. He says, you know, I wish I could be in San Diego because I finished top 10. I could play another week on the PGA tour, but that rule doesn't apply to amateurs. And he then looked at me and said, do you think I'm turning pro? And I said, well, John, we've had this talk before and I stand by it, which is the moment I feel like you're ready, you have my blessing to turn pro if that's what you want to do. And he said, coach, he goes, you gave me this opportunity at Arizona state. My dad gave me this opportunity at Arizona State. I promised my dad I'm going to graduate. You have nothing to worry about. I will be back for my, my junior or my senior year, and I'll graduate. And lo and behold, sure enough, that's exactly what he did. You know, and John could have turned pro. He would have had plenty of opportunities, uh, you know, starts right away. He would have had endorsements, but he stuck to his word. And, and I think that's one of, one of the things that people don't see about John very often is his loyalty. 
and he is as loyal of a person as I've ever been around. And, and that's something that nobody will ever be able to take away. And it's not, it's not important in John's mind for people to see that. But I think for those that are around John, John knows that we see it, which is the important thing. When I love that, Tim, because you want to give credit where it's due. When you see mm -hmm. such a great trait, loyalty in, in a young man like John, obviously your example there is one of the biggest ones of being loyal with college. Any other example stand out with the loyalty trait that John has in your time knowing him, obviously, over these years? as a teammate. I mean, I, nothing else stands out in my mind, but because of his loyalty – his friends that he made at Arizona State, I have not seen one iota from any of them of jealousy for John's success as a player or financial success. His friendship with his former teammates at ASU and the other friends that I, that I know that he made at ASU is so genuine. And I think it's very easy for people to be jealous but I have not seen anything from any of his friends. And I think that goes to show, as an example, John's loyalty to his friends, you know, from day one to, to right now. Definitely. Yeah. The proof is in the pudding with, with how, yeah. how he's acted with them. That's, that's great, man. Exactly. Um, we've gone down this great trail with Romney, such a good, admirable player. I do have some listener questions. Um, at Golf Gutsy from Twitter says, how, how were you able, Tim, to temper and manage Rom's competitive spirit, his feistiness while he was in college? So that, that was a challenge. He has reined it in. And I'll, I'm going to give that credit mostly to Adam Hayes because he's been able to rein him in over the last couple of years. You know, I, I, I tried. So I remember the first tournament, uh, I coached, we had a little incident where John like broke a bag stand. It wasn't the worst thing in the world, obviously, but you know, he had gone by and like clipped his putter, you know, hit his putter head against the, the bag stand and it broke, you know? And so I made him pay for a new bag stand. I made him obviously do some running, you know, and we continue to try to explain to John that anger is not the best way to, to get things out on the golf course. You can, you know, whether you, have, you can internalize it, you can externalize it, but you always have to have it out of the system by the time you get to the next shot. And I think that's one thing he struggled with. He carried a lot of that, um, that internally through one, two, or three shots after he hit the bad shot or whatever. The one thing we kept stressing, and, and he was good about this, but back, back then was, and he still is, is basically to not deface the golf course do not do any physical harm that's going to, you know, leave a negative mark uh, on the golf course for any other golfer or just the golf course in general. Yeah, and he's really matured. And I, I agree with you, Adam Hayes. I've gotten to know him over the last couple of years. Very mature guy. Um, yep. His caddy has been at it. I think he told me it was uh, we're coming up on Silverado. It was Silverado three years ago that where they started their their partnership is what is what Adam told me. So here they are coming up on that anniversary. Um, yeah. always good to have that with player and caddy. Um, another listener question at Hugh Brockway. He says, what is John Rahm's ceiling, Tim? And tour wins, majors. I mean, I know it's hard to put yeah. a number on it, but I mean, this guy is really showing a lot right now. I think it's, we have to remember the guy's only 25, right? Yes. He has not won a major yet, but he obviously will. 
I don't think there's much doubt in people's minds really how many. And I'm sure in John's mind, knowing the way he thinks, the only number that he's really thinking about is 18. You know, can he get there? For anybody to say, yes, that's going to happen, I think that that's a stretch. But if there's anybody that could get to that number that I see in the game right now, I think it is John. And, and I think if you simply look at how often he finishes in the top 10, you know, he's going to continue to have his opportunities and he's going to capitalize. He may not capitalize every time, just like he did not capitalize last year at the players, but he's going to have so many opportunities to win and in majors, you know, he made a run at this year's PGA. He will have his opportunities. He will win majors. I don't think there is a ceiling in John's mind. I think he wants to be the best that's ever been, which is a very high ceiling, but, but that's going to be what he strives for each and every day. And you say the best that's ever been based on just conversations with him, based on just getting to know him over the years? Or? So John is a historian of the game. He can go back and tell you pretty much the winner of every major, not just every major, but I could, he could probably tell you how it happened, you know, what happened on the last hole or the second to last hole. He's, he constantly is watching film of, of prior tournaments, you know, through YouTube and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, for a guy who – wants to be the best and physically has that ability to be the best, uh, why not strive to be the best of all time? And I think, you know, that's, that's his goal. And I think you have to shoot as high as you realistically think you can achieve. And I think realistically he knows that he's obviously very, very good. And, and I, I don't see why he can't be, if it's not the best of all time, Certainly, I can see him going down as, as a top five, top ten of all time player as long as things continue to work his way. You know, you have to stay healthy, things like that. But um, John's a phenomenal player, and, and he's going to keep doing great things. Speaking of great things, that was a hell of a finish from both him and DJ yesterday. What did you, you make of that? What was your take? Did you get to talk to him after? Uh, I just sent him a text. You know, that was really it. But, wow, I mean, just uh, – the amount of emotions that went through probably those, those two days for John with the just, just the bonehead mistake of, of picking up his ball without marking it to that tee shot on the par five that could have gone the hazard but bounced back, you know, in, in the rough where he was able to then make birdie to then having DJ make the putt on 18 just to get into the playoff. And then for – you know, and even if you just look at the first hole of the playoff, DJ hits it left and gets the good break into the fairway. You know, John, you know, obviously missed the fairway just a little bit to the right, but to then make that putt, uh, it, it's it was funny when you watch John from the other angle, you know, walking so he can see what it's going to do past the hole because he knew how fast it was. And then you can see his eyes just light up like, wait a second, this has a chance. And then obviously the reaction. So it was, it was pretty cool. Unbelievable. Almost like Torrey Pines three years ago in that very first PGA Tour win. Not yeah. too far from from your house. Uh, Correct. Down in Southern Correct. Um, I got to ask you, we got a big week coming up, your first tour event of the, of the new season. You're going to be in Napa. That's a special place for you. I know you've had an assist um, with obviously asking your, your fiance at yeah. the time to yep. marry you there. You had an assist from a musician. Tell us the story there, what happened. So... 
Last year at the Waste Management Open, Phil played with Jake Owen in the Wednesday Pro-Am. The night before that was my first ever date with my now wife. And I had told Jake, uh, I, said, I said, yeah, I think I met my, my, my future wife last night. And so it was sort of joking. Well, the next day, Thursday night, Jake Owen was doing a concert, and that was our second date. So my second date ever was a Jake Owen concert. Fast forward to when I found out he was going to be playing one of the free concerts at the Safeway Open in September. I had texted him and just said, hey, I said, would you be willing to, you know, partake in my proposal? Because I'm going to marry that same girl we talked about. And we're going to be there. Why don't, you know, so we planned this eight, nine weeks in advance because I had to get her family up there, you know, fly them up there, get everything arranged. And so long story short, uh, 10 minutes before he went on stage, we met with him uh, back in his sort of green room and I had already given him the ring. So we chatted for about I forgot to hand this to you, gave it to me. And then I just got on my one knee and, Ask Miranda to marry. What what things come to to your mind as being a caddy now for your brother Phil and and all these people you guys meet? Like, what are some of the fun celebrities that you've gotten to know at, uh, you know through this time? Well, certainly Jake is, is one of them, uh, and I think the reason why they got paired up was because of that hundred dollar bill you know comment that they made. So, who would have thought that a comment at Jordan Spieth's wedding about a hundred dollar bill would through a little mixture of ways lead to him helping my proposal. But that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, most of the people that we play with in the pro-ams uh, tend to be a lot of the CEOs. And so uh, to, to keep them all nameless, there's been a lot of cool CEOs that I, I respect a lot just based on things that they, you know, just things that they said about how the business world works and how it just equates to life and, and hard work and things like that. And, uh, the celebrities are fun, but I really look forward to the opportunities when we play with, with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and, and learn how they got to that point in their life and things like that. So um, those, those are the, the more enjoyable ones for me. Definitely. Yeah, there's been some good ones. Of course, you guys are preparing the final round at uh, Pebble Beach there, this final pairing there. Jerry Tardy was there from Golf Digest. A lot, a lot of people from the different walks of life. For you, uh, obviously, you just had that Champions Tour event. You guys just played debut for you and your brother. What really comes to mind in those initial few moments before he teed off? Was there anything, either in the hours before leading up, anything about his anticipation or your anticipation going in? I don't have to – I mean, I, for me, it was I get a golf cart. I don't have to carry the bag. No. Uh, the cool thing for me that week, obviously, with him winning, that was really cool, but – what I enjoyed the most out of that week was when we were just hitting balls in the range and other guys that had been on the tour for a while are driving by, they stop their cart, they walk 50 yards out of their way. They say, Phil, you know, welcome to our tour. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Don't stay too long, but we're thrilled to have you. Uh, to me, that meant a lot for, for players that he competed against when he first got on tour to then come up to him and, and say, hey, you know, welcome probably knowing that Phil's going to put a dent, you know, into, you know, their chances to win when he's out there. But it was really cool to see all those players do that. Uh, and then certainly to come down the stretch and, you know, there's, you only get one debut. I realize that he's 
the 20th person to win their debut, but you only get one chance at that. And so when you come into that tournament and you have that pressure, you know, that's a lot of pressure. You still have to live up to that. So for him to be able to go out and, and play very well and shoot 10 under the first round, build a, build a lead going into the final round, uh, and then ultimately finish it, that was, that was a, a lot of fun, fun to see. And, you know, he built up, I think it was a five-shot lead after six holes. And then on the seventh hole, which was a par five, we had a perfect tee shot and Tim Petrovic had hit it left. So you're thinking we're going to gain a shot, if not more. And Phil hits the green in two. Petrovic has to pitch out and he's got 100 and probably 90 to 200 yards to the pin. He gets up and down for birdie and Phil makes bogey. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Phil three putts for par. So that five shot lead that we thought was going to expand actually shrunk. And that was the moment where I'm like, okay, it's game on. Let's see how he responds. And he immediately birdies uh, eight. He birdied nine, two. He birdied eight and nine. So he immediately responded with a couple more birdies. You know, so that was uh, that was a lot of fun to to watch. And then we got to come home. And I'll tell you what, that big Cedar Lodge, I had I had heard of the place. I had never been there. That place is really cool. I mean, I, I hope to go back at some point and take a little like a boys' trip, play golf in the morning, get on the lake in the afternoon, do some fishing, do some wake surfing. Uh, I, I think that's a really cool spot. Plenty of golf, you know, two different par three courses, full length courses. So it's, it's pretty cool. Awesome venue for sure to make that deb debut there. Just 24 hours after they finish his playoffs there in yeah. Boston. Um, what about just um, for Phil to seeing him get that win and just what was, what was kind of the moment that sticks out the most for you guys as, as a team from, from that week? The moment for me that sticks out is, is simply just winning the debut, knowing that he's got a, a place to go when he's done with the PGA tour. And I think it's pretty obvious uh, that Phil's goal is going to be to win on the PGA tour. And, and you know, I, he, he said it before he wants to get to 50 wins. So, you know, in his mind, he wants to be on the, on the PGA tour and, and you'll, you know, you can go through Instagram and social media and you can see people's comments saying, well, you know, he should just, he should just play the champions tour, you know, blah, blah, blah. The guy finished second in a, in a WGC event, you know, a month ago for them to think that, that he can't compete out there is just ludicrous. And you also see people on Instagram that say Phil shouldn't have even played the champions tour event. I mean, I, I don't understand, you know, certain people out there. Cause certainly anytime you turn over, over 50, you have the right to go out there. Uh, especially if there's not a tournament for him to play on the PGA tour, you know, and obviously we got knocked out. We couldn't go to BMW. And like Phil had said, he's like, I'm playing well. My scores did not show it in Boston but I'm playing well. So I want to keep competing. And this was his opportunity to compete uh, instead of just taking two weeks off and then showing up to Napa. And so certainly I think we've got some positive momentum and mojo because, you know, he played well there and is, is going to be ready to go at Napa. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's a big one. Of course, he's been a big part of that tournament the last yeah. few years. Um, we got a question from, Worst caddy ever, love the name, at caddy ever on Twitter. What's the craziest thing, <laughs> Tim, that you've seen your brother pull off on the golf course? <laughs> there have been, been a few. Uh, one of them was number nine at TPC Summerlin in Las Vegas last year. 
we hit it into a tumbleweed left of the fairway by, we were probably 20 yards left of the fairway in the middle of like, it wasn't a tumbleweed. It's, it's basically like uh, that tall grass, the weed that it almost looks like a tumbleweed, but it was sitting in this plant, so to speak, six inches off the ground. You couldn't see the ball. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to hit like eight iron, you know, we'll just get it back into play, try to get up and down from 150 yards. And he's asking for driver. I'm thinking we're hitting driver through a bush, you know, and sure enough, he launches this thing up and over. And, you know, we, I don't think we made birdie, but he got it to about 80 yards short of the green on, on, in two. Um, that was one thing. The other one, and he still doesn't know this, so I sort of hope he doesn't listen to this, but uh, two years ago when we won AT&T Pebble Beach, the par five at Spyglass, which would be 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, if you hit a long drive there, you can get home in two, but it's obviously a place that's very wet, so not, not a ton of chances, and there was a ton of rain, and we drive it way right. I mean, we are – 50 yards right of the fairway. And so, and for those that don't know the course, there is a small pond just short right of the green. And I basically triangulate to get us a number so I know exactly how far we need to hit it to lay up just short of the pond. Say, hey, you know, as long as we're, you know, 210 or shorter, we're fine. We're, you know, pond doesn't come into play. Well, when I was getting that number, Phil was able to get relief from basically because there was like a puddle, it was like a casual water situation. And the nearest relief was 20 yards left of where his ball was. And all of a sudden there's about a 10 foot wide gap in the trees. Well, I still didn't think he's going to go for it for the green. And so I come back and he goes, okay, well, what, uh, what's the number? And I'm like, well, you know, 210, uh, 210 or shorter is, is fine for the layup. Just depends on how, how far you want left for your third. He goes, what's the pin? Huh? I'm like, pin? I'm like, you got trees all over the place. You know, we're all hitting off the dirt. But I'm like, uh, you got 265 uh, pin and you got 258 to carry the bunker. Complete guess. I mean, I know the number was close, but I could not with certainty say that was the number. Still not thinking he's going to go for it. Sure enough, he pulls out three wood and rifles this three wood to about six feet. And he missed the putt. I mean, it would, it would have been the most epic story if he would have made the eagle. But if I was wrong, that could have been pretty, uh, pretty destructive to our score if that ball went in the water. But it didn't. And he won that week. So it was fantastic. What a story. For you, when you think back against your brother, what's a story of you playing against him in, in a wager where you came out on the top and you just to this day, oh, yeah, baby. That's love, love that story. Uh, I don't know if there is one, to be honest. <laughs> There have been times that the best way to beat Phil on the golf course, just score-wise, is if you just go quietly about your day, you know, and if you're three or four up with two or three to go, you probably have them because there's not necessarily enough time for him to recoup those, those lost shots. But if he realizes that he's down four to you with like, and he's got nine or 10 holes still, you know, he's probably going to catch it. But I, I remember a couple of times where I was able to be up by four or five shots and he didn't really think about it or know it until it was too late, which was great. Uh, but he used to do this thing to us when I, when I was a kid, you know, he was a psychology major at ASU. Naturally. And so when he was, you know, and he's seven years older than me. So let's say his junior year, he's 20 years old. So I'm 13. We were playing golf 
uh, at our old country club in San Diego called Stardust. And I'd be like a hundred yards out in the middle of the fairway and I'd be getting ready to like walk into the shot and he'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. He goes, I'm getting this sense that you're going to miss the green. And I, it's so strong that I'm going to write the direction that you're going to miss it on the cart. And I'll show you after you miss the green. And so now I'm like looking at the shot thinking, well, does he think I'm going to miss it left because that's the bunker or am I going to miss it right because it's a short side? Like where in the world does he think I'm going to miss it? And so I would hit the shot and I'd ultimately miss the green and I'd come back to the cart and he'd point, you know, on the cart. See, I wrote left. You were going to miss it left. And he'd be right. Took me a couple of years to realize a, he was just trying to see how easy it was from a psychological standpoint to get in my head and B, what he probably was doing was writing the word left in one part of the cart and right on another. So as long as I missed the green, he was going to be able to show me that he was correct. Yeah, he's like, knows exactly where to go in the deck. Exactly. <laughs> um, anything that, that would surprise us as golf fans to know about Phil and, and, and the way he kind of plays mind games out, just for fun, when he's playing with friends? Uh, I wouldn't say he plays mind games. You know, every now and then he'll do this thing where if, if there's an important putt in a practice round and the guy misses and it's so close and like lips out and he'll, he'll say something like, there's only one ex explanation on how that missed. I just willed that ball out of the hole. That's the only explanation because that thing looked like it was dead center. Uh, I think the one thing that I want people to, to realize because in my mind it's so cool is that, you know, Phil's obviously he's now 50. So he's been out on tour for 28, 29 years. His drive to succeed and his will to win are as strong now as I've ever seen it. Like I, I, you know, it, it's as strong now as it was when he first turned pro. So, you know, the time and effort he's putting in to continue to get better and, and wanting to win and doing everything he can in order to put himself in a position to win uh, is to be commended. And, and as his caddy, uh, I obviously appreciate the fact that he does that. But he is, you know, he, he is a grinder and he's, he grinds just as much now as he did when he turned 22 and was on tour. Because you mentioned that drive, do you feel like he was putting any kind of, I shouldn't say pressure on himself, but that, that debut, do you feel like there was anything about that that he was really putting, putting more on him because of that drive? I think he probably, I think he probably felt the pressure of being the odds on favorite as they call it. Right. Um, being his debut, knowing you only get one chance to win your debut. Not that it was a big deal if he didn't, but you know, I think it's a pretty cool thing to, to, to win your debut, whether it's on the PGA tour, the champions tour, corn Ferry tour, any tour to win your first event out there is, is a pretty special thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can't say that we got out there and he looked nervous or anything like that. Cause he played very, very well that first round, but I believe that he was probably thinking about it the night before, you know, and maybe that morning is, Hey, this is my only opportunity to win my debut. Let's go out and do it. And you want to get off to a fast start. And we certainly did that. And, uh, we did. Yeah. That was a big one. Some rapid fire questions for you, Tim. Um, what's the favorite place you've ever surfed? Surfed? Uh, I would just say Carlsbad, right? South Carlsbad State Beach, right outside where I live. Good stuff. Yeah, that's a great place to live. A favorite country you visited and why? 
I love Thailand. I visited Thailand uh, last October in uh, Phuket area. Absolutely love it. I will be back for sure. Favorite musician? Jake Owen, of course. <laughs> I mean, come on. He helped double with your marriage. What are you going to do? Exactly. Right? Uh, what about favorite actor who comes to mind? Ooh, favorite actor. Uh, you know what? I really don't have one. But uh, if you wanted to go favorite movies, I would say sure. Top Gun and Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy. All-time classic. Yeah. Good old Chris Farley. Yes. Uh, favorite moment on a golf course? Favorite moment on a golf course? I would say the trip that I took with my dad where I took him to Pine Valley, Shinnecock, Wingfoot, and Baltusrol. Just him and I over four days. Gosh, what a moment there. Um, okay, we wrapped up rapid fire there. You mentioned Wingfoot. I want to get it into that for just a minute here. A U.S. Open at Wingfoot coming up. Obviously, we know how close Phil was there. What are you thinking? Um, what, what are kind of the thoughts going in for you guys? I think it's simple. If he drives the ball the way he has been over the last, let's say, six to ten weeks, uh, let's not get caught up on length, whether it's driving the ball with the driver or hitting fairways with two irons. If we hit you know, more fairways than we're used to, let's say, I think we'll have an excellent chance because his iron play is, is very good right now and his short game is good, his putting's good. So our key is just going to be hitting fairways. Definitely. D does Phil talk about that 06 close call at all? I mean, I know, you know, that it's part of his career. That's part of a chapter. Yeah. Does it come up much? Uh, we don't talk about it any more than other times that he's finished second. I think there was a time where that was the focus because – you know, that was one where he felt like that was my best chance based on the numbers, but there's still five other times for that tournament and others. So we don't talk about it any more than others. I'm sure there'll be video of it this year because of where, where it's at, but we're just going to roll with it. Yeah. And I appreciate the time. Last question here is called beyond the clubhouse the name of my podcast. And I say that because of the friendships we all make the lasting relationships because of the game of golf. When you look back in your 43 years, who are some people that really come to mind have been some of the rewarding friendships from the game of golf? For me, it was everything about teammates. So my teammates from Arizona state, my teammates from Oregon state, and then the players that I coached at both university of San Diego and ASU. Um, the, the guys that I coached, I always looked at as I was the big brother helping the little brother out. And I keep in touch with a lot of those guys from both schools and they're some of my best friends and without golf, I would not have met them. So that, those are the, the most cherished uh, guys and moments for me from golf. Well, Tim, appreciate your time and joining me here on beyond the clubhouse and good luck here with these next couple tournaments, special places for you, man. Definitely for sure. Thanks Garrett. All right, my thanks to Tim Mickelson for joining me on the pod. What did you guys think? I thought there were some really good stories that he dug deep with, obviously with Phil and, and some, some fun stories about caddying for him, of course, at Pebble Beach the year they won, 2019. And then look at the other stuff that we got. Uh, obviously, John Rahm. I mean, look at, is there a guy that knows Rahm as well as Mickelson, as well as, I should say, Tim Mickelson, just from spending time as his college coach, mentoring him, in those early days when he was over here from Spain. I just think it's just really cool to hear that story and to hear a lot of the insight that he gave about John and, gosh, his ceiling, while he really wants to be the best of the best. 
of all time. Like that's that's something that's ingrained in John. So really cool to hear that from from Tim. And hey, thanks again for joining me here on the pod. Again, you can tweet at me at Johnston Garrett. Of course, on Twitter, we've got my Beyond the Clubhouse podcast is at Beyond Clubhouse. And then, of course, Instagram at Garrett Johnston Golf. Facebook, Garrett Johnston. And then, of course, Beyond the Clubhouse on Facebook as well. Any questions, I loved getting them from this week, guys. Keep that coming. And look forward to uh, Tour Championship. Hope you guys have a good pick for this week. Hope you make some good money. And we'll talk to you again soon.